The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Well, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Canyon Ridge Church, and I get the privilege of speaking to you today, the message and, you know, I always come to the message with mixed feelings, you know, I'm both excited about this, I'm really, really wanting to bring this message to you, and I'm a little terrified, you know, not just because I'm speaking in front of people, but uh, um, because the message is, is something that seeks to change us. It's something that seeks to, uh, to rattle us up a little bit and then change us and lead us somewhere different. And um, today I think I have kind of maybe a heavier message than normal, but I always have heavier messages. And... <laughs> And so I just think that, you know, maybe, maybe we, we need a little extra help from God to receive this. Um, because even a heavy message, if it's from God's Word, God's Word is life. And so I want us to receive this in that spirit. It, it's certainly not a message that beats us down, but it's a message on a topic that's kind of heavier. And so um, I want us to receive it in a spirit that says that this is a message about life. And, uh, yeah, so let's go to God in prayer, because um, I think we need God's help with that uh, before we go into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, that your word is truth, your word is life, and that you give it to us, God, and, and, and you call us together um, under your word, and, and you say, not just that, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my spirit that will be in you and to speak to your spirit about this truth. And God, we just need your spirit to be present in us today. Help us to receive your word, and God, to know how it, how it is life to us. Um, be with us as this message is given. And be with us after it's given, God. We want this message to translate into our lives from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for thousands of years, life has been compared to a game, to a competition, to a sport. Uh, You know, we're all in it together, but we don't all get the same things out of it. There are winners, there are losers, there are cheaters, there are... There are victims, there are penalties, there are some surprise opportunities that come our way. I mean, this idea is in the Bible, and it's also in many places outside of the Bible. It's not only in the Bible. Many other people and uh, thought processes have uh, has made this comparison over the ages. In fact, today, if you, if you want to, you could take a trip today and just go down to your local Target or Walmart, and you can buy a copy of... The Game of Life. Now, many of you probably know about this. It's been around for a long time. I had a copy of it when I was a kid. Um, but actually, what you may not know is that this Game of Life has been around since 1860. It's that old and been remade over and over again over 150 years. Well, I had the chance to play this uh, 1960s version of it uh, recently with my family. Uh, just a little over a week ago, we were up at Olivia's parents' house. They still have the classic. And... Uh, so what, what, how much better could you get than that, right? But it's interesting to see what the game of life has to say about life. I mean, in essence, the message is this. Everybody's life goes through the same basic path. We go to school, career, marriage, kids, tragedy, fortune, retirement. Right? I mean, you know, we all follow the same basic path. It's just that some of us spin a five and we land on, congratulations, you had twins. And others of us spin a seven and it's careless, lose auto insurance, right? But in the end, what is the game of life all about? Money, right? Whoever has the most money in the end of the game wins. 
All of the events between your starting square and your ending square don't matter a hill of beans if you don't have a couple of million dollars to show for it by the end of the game. So if you land on a space that says you've agreed to donate to an orphanage, well, that's a noble cause, right? That's a good thing, right? No, you're very angry about it because it costs you money. That's the game of life. But there's one other thing that matters in this game of life. Chance. Pure, dumb luck. Now, of course, this is important throughout the game because if you spin the wrong number, your house catches on fire. But it reaches its zenith at the end of the game. Near the end of your life, the game gives you one shot to risk it all. Okay, so if you're at the end of the board and you realize you probably don't have enough money to win, you have one shot. You can take the gamble. You can place everything you have on the odds of spinning one number out of ten on this dot, on this spinner on the game. And if your number comes up, you win the entire game right then and there. It's just over. It's not like you get a bunch of money. No, you just win. The game ends there. So when we played this game with our family, uh, it was coming down to the end, you know, playing with Isaac, my seven-year-old, and Alex, my four-year-old, and they were both kicking our butts. You know, they were... They were leaps and bounds ahead of Olivia and me, and I was solidly looking at last place. But Olivia, was, uh, she came to that point, and she was in third place, and she's like, there's no way I'm going to win this, not against these young children. Uh, and so she decided to risk it all. She put all of her money on one number on the spinner, and she spun the dial, and she won. It was over. That's all that mattered. The whole game, that one spin was the only thing that mattered the entire time. Now, the board game... Okay, it's kind of fun. You may say it's kind of fun, but think about the depressing message about life that is behind this game. Life is ultimately about accumulating and chance. You'll win the game if you accumulate the most money, but there's a pretty high chance you're not going to do that or that you're going to lose the game either to just bad luck throughout or even worse, you're going to come down to the very end and get to this really depressing conclusion that it all doesn't matter anyway. All the good choices you made, all the wonderful hard work you put in could mean nothing in the face of someone else's freakishly good luck. And you know, I wish, I wish that those views were something that was just confined to a board game. I think we see them out there in life. But I have some good news for you today and some bad news for you today. The good news is this. Winning the game, the real game, right? The real game of life, winning the game has nothing to do with luck or with the mindless amassing of dollars and possessions. The bad news is this. It involves you dying. So let's read from the scriptures about what this has to say. Let's, uh, let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 and following. Now, you can read along on the screen if you want. There's Bibles in the chairs if you want to use those. Uh, I am using the New International Version, so the wording will be a little different if you're going to use those in the, in the chairs. But it says this, Mark 8, 31 and following. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. 
you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd along him with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and must take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Winning the game, first and foremost, is about losing, dying, denying ourselves. And that's where we stop listening. <laughs> Pastor John talked a few weeks ago about the fact that in the game, we've got to make a choice whether we're going to be sitting in the stands playing the role of a spectator or at best a critic or whether we're going to actually get on the field, get our hands dirty, and play the game set out before us. Well, it's comments from Jesus like these that keep us in our seats. Jesus tells us if we want to get in the game and we want to play to win, our first step, our primary experience, will be losing what we want. And so fans, we remain. Only fans. Fairweather fans, perhaps. But there we are, just supposed fans of Jesus. But here's the thing about fans, though. They don't have to listen to anyone. They cheer when they want to. They boo when they want to. They show up and leave when they want to. They switch teams when they want to. Fans have plenty to say, and they have plenty to even shout and scream about. Plenty to wear funny costumes about. But they have little reason or inclination to listen. Though they may seem loyal to a team, their loyalties are certainly open to change. Oh, and here's the really significant thing. No fan sitting in the stands has ever won the game. And it seems to me that there are a few key times in scriptures, in the scriptures where Jesus really tries to make it clear to people that he's not just interested in building up a fan base. Occasionally, I mean, Jesus would have whole crowds of people that would follow him from town to town and appeared, what appeared to be this movement of solidarity and, you know, just standing with him for everything that he stood for. But Jesus knew the truth. He knew that what he had were mere fans. They weren't in the game with him. They were just there to watch him play it. And those times, at those times, he threw out some hard teachings. He started talking about sacrifice, suffering, dying. And somehow, what do you know, the crowds thinned out. He wasn't looking for attention, for the shouts of affirmation that his fans were willing to give him at any turn. He was looking for followers, people who would play the game under his leadership, under his rules, under his definition of winning. And so we look back at that, and there are at least two things about what Jesus had to say there that really rub us the wrong way. I mean, first of all, 
we don't like the definition of winning. I mean, Jesus spoke very plainly about what he had to go through. Suffering, rejection, death, in order to actually win. But don't miss out on what he taught. He did speak of winning, too. It actually says he spoke of suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. That's lose, 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 win forever. But look at the reaction from one of his closest friends when he gets this teaching. Peter physically grabs Jesus, pulls him aside, and rebukes him. Now, that takes some guts right there. I don't know if I could do that to the Son of God. But Peter did. That shows you just how deeply and how passionately he felt about this description of winning. How unacceptable it was to him. He attempted to correct the Messiah, the Savior of the world, about how the world needs to be saved. You don't win by losing. You win by winning. Or so Peter thought. Peter was wrong. I mean, he wasn't just a little off. Not just a little correction he needed. His good-natured attempt to help his Messiah out was instantly and publicly denounced by Jesus as a satanic thought. I mean, if you look back to what Mark tells us, it gives us the impression that Peter tried to be discreet. I mean, he, he had some guts to do what he did, but he tried to be discreet, pulled Jesus off to the side, gave him a little advice, and then Jesus blew it up. He, when he says, get behind me, Satan, he says it for all the disciples there to hear. He's not keeping the conversation just one-on-one -on -one anymore. And then after that, it says that Jesus actually calls the crowd around together to set this matter straight. He wants no ambiguity here. The path of real eternal life runs through death. Take it or leave it. So that's one thing we're not too fond of. The whole winning is actually going to be losing thing. But the second thing is this. We're rubbed the wrong way again when Jesus calls us out of the stands. You see, winning is dying. Well, that's a concept that we can get used to as long as it applies to Jesus, right? I mean, Peter couldn't do that, you know, because he, it hadn't happened yet. You know, it was still future. Jesus hadn't died yet. There's still a chance that this could be different. Right? But, I mean, in our day, in our culture, we're familiar enough with the story of Jesus that, that we know that his story only makes sense with the cross. Right? We've got crosses on just about everything you could think of nowadays because as we get it. 2,000 years ago, on that cross where Jesus' life was lost, that's, that's where our lives were won. We get it. But we'd really like for that path of suffering and rejection and death, we'd like that to apply only to Jesus. We'll just cheer him on. We'll celebrate his victory. But other than that, we're not so keen on repeating those details. Funny thing, though. Even when Jesus, before his death, even when he was talking about his death, when he talks about his own death and resurrection, very important for people to know about, he often just brings you and me into that conversation pretty quickly. In fact, you can make a pretty easy case for the argument that Jesus saw his own death and resurrection, not just as this unique event in history, which it was, but as a model for how we should live. One minute Jesus teaching about, about how he must suffer and die. Not that just he's going to suffer and die, but how he must suffer and die. And the next, he's telling us that we need to pick up our crosses. We need to follow him in his path. 
In fact, there's, a, there's another teaching in John chapter 12. We're not going to look at it in detail, but in one paragraph, Jesus says, I'm going to die. He gives a metaphor about what it's going to be like, and he says, you need to die. It's all in one paragraph. There's no break. And then by the time you get done reading what he has to say, you're not even sure if when he gives that little metaphor, you're not sure if he's talking about himself anymore. He might be talking about you. Or maybe he's talking about both of us. It's that closely tied together. Jesus sees the two as intimately related. And so the call for us to win by losing, it's very, very real. I mean, if we look back again at the language that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 8, we'll see it. I mean, he spells it out. Yes, whoever loses their life for me in the gospel, they will save it. I mean, pretty, pretty clear there. But, but he also says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, I don't think that language has a lot of the punch to us that it once had. You know, and to the original hearers, you know, this was very clear. This was a call to be martyrs. This was a call, or at least to be willing to be martyrs. Because the cross, back when Jesus said this, had no deep, meaningful kind of symbolism associated with it yet. Jesus hadn't died on it yet. So, so when he invited people to a cross, this wasn't a figurative, mushy way of saying, gather around Jesus, young ones. No. The cross was the most torturous death that one could imagine in that day. And Jesus asked them to prepare for that in order that they could gain something that was beyond what they could imagine. Nowadays, we've taken the punch out of this quite a lot. We speak of bearing a cross as if it were just some inevitable irritation in life. I don't get to sleep well at nights, but I guess it's my cross to bear. My family, I tell you, they are the most dysfunctional family in the world tough to be around them, but I guess that's my cross to bear. I'm a, I'm a vegetarian in a meat-eater's world, but I guess that's my cross to bear. I mean, do you see how much we've cheapened what Jesus was saying? Our cross to bear is the denial of our very selves, the killing off of every desire that we would have that would serve some other plan than the one that God has determined for us. And if that even takes us so far as to our physical death, then so be it. And when we are bearing that cross, not the cheap ones we've made up, then we are winning the game. We are followers and we're not just fans anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, if you are daring enough to believe what Jesus has to say, you're going to run into some problems. I'll warn you right now. This whole world, and probably you and me too, we're not in innocent, but this whole world, us included, is conditioned to see things a different way. There are reasons we've heard these words before, and yet we're still trying to win by winning. And those reasons are not going anywhere anytime soon. The first problem you're going to run into is that if you want to, lose your, if you want to win your life by losing it for Jesus... Almost no one else will support this belief. I mean, think of how foreign it is, right? We don't see this anywhere else. How long would you last as a coach if your strategy was to win by losing? 
Would you keep your job as an investment banker if you gathered your clients around and said, I've got this new strategy. I'm going to make you a lot of money, but first, you're going to lose it all. Just trust me. <laughs> How would your performance review go as a teacher if you told all your students, all right, students, now you know all those dreams you have about your future? I want you to crush them so we can build better ones. How would that go over? Or how about if you are running a race and you come in last place, but after you do that, you strode right up to the podium and wait to have a medal rung around your neck. How long do you think it'll be before they call security? The idea of winning by losing is completely foreign to us. It's a teaching that calls for us to relinquish control of our lives in a world where we do almost everything we possibly can to get more control over our lives. In fact, every day, you're going to have a thousand different voices to the contrary, blaring in front of your eyes and your ears. Virtually every marketing technique out there is appealing to you as the sole determiner of your destiny. Not only that, they are also calling you back to the original 1960s game of life. They're calling you to win by acquiring, by gaining the worlds, if you will. Meanwhile, at the same time as they are pressing you with this message that only you should decide what you want to do, they're subtly trying to get you to do what they want to do. It's deceptive. And even if we go to the brighter side of things, even the most well-meaning teachers we have, the most, the most respected speakers we have, and leaders we have, They'll preach a lot of messages about winning. Winning by determination. Winning by never giving up on your dreams. Winning by beating the odds. Winning by hard work. Winning by intelligent and informed decision-making. Okay? These are all good messages in the right context. I'm not saying they're not. They're not bad messages. God's not against hard work and good decision-making. Okay? Don't go away from this message thinking that. But here's the point. Even among the best messages that we pass around, what you won't see almost ever is the message about winning by the death of self. Winning by yielding your life over to someone else who's worthy of living it. Someone else who should be calling the shots in your world. It's a foreign message, both to our ears and unfortunately often to our practice. And yet, it's the truth. And if you're here and you're hearing this truth today, you will probably hear at least a hundred messages to the contrary before we see you again. But the second problem you're going to run into, you're daring enough to believe Jesus' words, trying to win the game, is that even if you can wade through all of this, if you can wade through the mire of conflicting beliefs out there and somehow get the truth and somehow hold on to it, even if you can do that, we don't want to die. Denying the self hurts. I mean, just because I'm losing my own life on purpose doesn't make things any less painful. Choosing this path will feel like death, like suffering. And dare I say it, sometimes it will actually feel wrong to me. I mean, how can that be good? I'm taught in so many other ways that it's not. My four-year-old son 
gets to come up twice in this sermon. My four-year-old son, Alex, illustrated this beautifully for me a few days ago on Friday. So after we had one of these nuclear meltdown standoffs that, you know, happen a couple times a week for us, we got to that point where it was time to, you know, hug and forgive and move forward. Right? That's a good point. However, between Olivia and myself, we at least decided that um, we decided that Alex needed to ease his way back into things. And so we were going to allow him to, to go to his room and pick out any books that he wanted and start reading for a while before we let him just pick any toys he wanted to play with. Now, that was a really tough decision for Alex. He was ready to play. He didn't want to read. Um, but he went with it. Of course, within about 15 minutes, he was ready to break free of this literary prison that we had banished him to. And so he took that first dangerous step out into the hallway to request permission to do something other than what we had allowed. Well, of course, we said no. But Alex was not ready to accept that. He started to tell us that he'd read enough and he was going to go play Legos anyway. But I told him, I said, wait, Alex, stop for a minute, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop and I just want you to think about what the right decision to make would be, okay? Think about it for a minute, and then you can make your decision about what you want to do. And he did that. It was a miracle. A little small miracle occurred. Alex stopped, and he thought about what the best decision for him would be. But when he did that, when he got through that, he made a decision, and his face changed. Tears formed in his eyes, and he began to weep. And through a sobbing voice, he told us, I'm going to go back in my room and read again. I was so proud of him. He made the right decision, and yet something in him had to die for that to happen. And it hurt. It hurt him. You know, four-year-olds know how to manufacture tears, but this was not that. These were real tears of the sadness that he experienced at the loss of self. I mean, we want good, right? We want good. We want to win, but we don't want to die. (laughs) And so, do you know what we do? We lie to ourselves. That's our solution. We dream up a scenario in which somehow both things can happen. We can do what God wants us to do, which involves dying, and not die. We imagine a resurrection with no death, so to speak. It's almost like an imaginary negotiation that we we set forth with God. I mean, God's already told us basically this. All right, start by giving up everything, and when you do, I will fill your life with everything you need to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to be blessed. You will actually be more blessed now than you've ever been, and you will win the game in the end, and you will enter into eternal happiness. Wow, that's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal right there. I like that, except that it starts with this thing. Start by giving up everything. Okay, so what, how about this? I will give up a few things just to show I'm serious. You know, the stuff that, you know, the stuff that I really can do, but the other part of that is really that those things are part of me, and God doesn't want me to lose me. So, God, I'll give those few things up, and then I don't have to be afraid about 
the decisions that you'll make because I will still be a part of that process. And then I'll be more blessed now than I've ever been and I'll win the game and I'll enter into eternal happiness. That's what we do. We try to have it both ways. We tell ourselves stories that show how we can both do what God wants and do what we want even when they are different things. They're lies, but we like to believe them anyway. A great example of this was in a recent movie called The Adjustment Bureau. Have seen it? Three people have seen that movie. Well, let me tell you about it. If you haven't, heard, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you. So plug your ears if you have to. But. So there's this story, and it's a pretty interesting one, because it's a story that poses a man, the main character, between uh, what he wants and what God wants for his life. Now, the movie actually refers to God as the chairman, and instead of angels, he has agents that run about the world. But you get the metaphor, right? So the plot revolves around this congressman. He begins to be attracted to a girl. Oh, that's how all things start, isn't it? This dancer, okay? So now the chairman, God, has great plans for each of these two individuals. The congressman will become a future president of the United States, and the dancer is slated to become a world-famous artist. However, none of that will happen if they fall in love because they will get married and they'll start a family and they'll focus on that instead of going forth with these careers that God has planned for them that will change the entire world. So, the chairman sends out agents to make sure that his plan is followed. And so much of the movie is taken up with the congressman's attempt to subvert the working of these divine agents. Well, since the chairman's plan is standing in the way of true love the congressman must find a way to rewrite the plan or to get around it. Long story short, when the movie comes to an end, the congressman has gone to such extreme lengths to subvert this divine plan that the chairman is actually moved by the true love he has. The true love between this man and this woman that would stop at nothing to be together. And so, the chairman changes his mind. He writes a new plan that allows them to be together. And all is happy in the end. And the audience is all happy in the end. Why? Because that's the story we want to hear. We so desperately want to believe that we can have it all. That there is some way to get everything we want for us and to be at peace with God. But Jesus told us, life isn't like that. Okay, so if you want to rent this movie and think it's fun and romantic and whatever, that's fine. But let me tell you this, it is lying to us. We can't have it both ways. We can't be the masters of our own destiny and claim the goddess. It's one or the other. Now, it's easy to hear that example and brush it off and think, well, that's just a movie, it's just a silly thing, it's a fantasy. God doesn't really put people in situations like that. He always makes a way for everything to work out for all sides. You know, I mean, God is smart enough to do that. We're just not. We just got to find out how God is planning on doing it that way. I'm sorry, but that's just another way to tell that same story. The fact is we face these kinds of mutually exclusive decisions all the time. When God asks for our time, we cannot both give it to him 
and use it for our selfish reasons. When God asks for our money, we can't both give it to him and keep it. When God calls us forward into service, we cannot both obey his calling and decide for ourselves where we feel like serving. When God convicts us of that ugly thing called sin, he tells us, you've got some of that in your life. We can't both honor him and continue on unchanged. Actually, if you want to look more into this, the book of 1 John makes this very point, if you want to read about this. It tells us we cannot satisfy God's will at the same time as we're moving against it. All right. Well, let's end with some good news. Death is a heavy subject, but that's not the only subject here. That's not the only thing that's promised here. And perhaps I've spent the majority of my time here on this message on the side of death, on this side of things, because I know that's the part that's both hardest to hear and it's the part that no one else is telling you. You won't hear it other places very often. But death, denial, suffering, those are not actually the end goal here. The end goal is life. The best possible life. Resurrection. Winning the game set before us. Jesus tells us that whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's a promise. This death he calls us to, it's not merely an, a, just a death. It's an exchange. There's something that comes in place of it when we give it up. We get rid of a frail, fallen life that's actually bent on self-destruction. And we get in exchange his vibrant, joyous life that is built to last for eternity. And you know, throughout writing this sermon, I've just had this image in my head the whole time, enough that I figured I should maybe share it with you. Uh, last week, Pastor John had a really cool demonstration that he did up front here, but I won't demonstrate this one because I was really afraid of making a huge mess. So you'll have to picture it in your minds. But at least try to picture this with me, if you will. Picture that you are a glass filled up to the very top with oil. Okay, that oil represents your life as you have assembled it. I mean, with the help of others, with the influence of others, sure. But that's your life as you have assembled it. But Jesus comes along to you and he says, you can't win the game with a glass full of oil. In fact, you can't even experience the fullness of the game right now with a glass full of oil. Now, you love your oil. You've known it all your life. You're comfortable with it. You were the primary artist that helped make that oil what it is. I mean, you chose its color, its texture, its scent, its properties. But he knows your oil is perishable, it's flammable, and it's full of impurities. And he wants to fill you up with something different. Living water. But right now, there is no way to get water in your glass. Oil and water don't mix. So if he tries to pour some of his life into you right now, it'll just run off the top and spill all over the place and make a mess. And so he tells us, if you want to be filled with my life, you've got to be free from living your own. There is no way to get water into that glass unless the oil comes out. 
no doubt, the oil coming out will feel like death. It feels like part of our life is leaving us. Well, because it is. There may be tears. There may be sadness accompanied with it. But the end result is that we can be filled with life. Not the cheap imitation stuff that we started with either, but life that pleases God. Life that produces true fulfillment, both now and into eternity. And that is the only way to win the game. Let's pray. Father God, I can think of no more difficult task that we face than this one we're discussing this morning. And I will be the first to admit that I am one who is constantly looking for some other option to have it both ways, to do your will without sacrificing my own. God, forgive us. Forgive us and gently draw us back to yourself. Help us to crave the life that only you can fill us with, God. And to trust you greater as we work to deny ourselves. Make us a people free from the slavery of serving ourselves and free to become everything that you will for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.